So, um, as many of you know, coming up in two days is a vote here in Kansas that I want to address. Um, it's not about a political party. It's not about voting Republican or Democrat. Uh, on the, the, the ballot for vote is simply um, some provisions that will make it more difficult for the abortion industry to continue to operate the way it does currently in Kansas. It does not end abortion altogether. It does not um, go as far as uh, I believe God would want it to go. But it is a step in the right direction. And um, I, I want to encourage you to use your God-given rights stand up for the unborn on Tuesday. And I want to take a moment to address the topic of abortion and, and partly why I've been hesitant over the years, because I feel like you, you really need to take some time uh, to address it properly. Um, I feel like sound bites and, and one sentence statements can sometimes be misunderstood. Um, I remember in my early 20s, I used to be part of just about all of the anti-abortion rallies that existed. I was very, very active in that thing um, and in that movement. And I'll never forget being at the abortion clinic in Wichita um, with some of the people that were part of these rallies that I had set with in church and set with through seminars and set through with strategy planning on how do we stop abortion and uh, watching the what appeared to me absolute hatred for these women and they had become so wrapped up in the term murder, which I'm going to address in a moment, um, and there was a moment I, I watched a mother come in a car that needed, and I, in my heart, I really believe she could have been talked out of the situation. But when she saw the absolute hatred and slurs and names that were hurled at her by people standing shoulder to shoulder with me, I watched the final last bit of her just decide this there is no hope and i remember being ashamed to be associated with such hatred i remember questioning is that really is that how jesus would have done it i know that jesus would be standing for what we're standing for but is that how he would do it is there another way to do it and all i can tell you is for joplin emberson I was convicted, and I was confused because they seemed to be the only people standing up while the rest of the church sat at home and did nothing, and I, I just found myself really conflicted. I remember walking away from that movement with, without any great degree of certainty of how to move forward, and I share that this morning because as I'm addressing this topic, I think it's important that, that you know my heart. Abortion is one of the most wicked evils that, and, and could be argued possibly the most wicked evil, that has stained the world and stained the country in which God chose to place me 
to live my life in. It is the ending of an innocent life. And uh, we should stand for life, and we should stand for the innocent, and we should stand for those who cannot speak for themselves. If you've ever had an abortion, I want you to, 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 to hear me this morning. God loves you. God's not just up there waiting for you to die so that he can heap punishment on you for, for what you've done. What you, what, if, if you've had an abortion, I, I, I say it sincerely and without any beating around the bush. It's wrong. It was a sin. But I know this because I've sat with people who have had abortions just like the rest of us, they tend to justify their sins. I know this, that deep inside the heart of every woman, because I believe in the design of God Almighty, is motherhood. And in order for a mother to get to that place, she has to convince herself that she's really doing what's best. And if you've never been there, it's hard. You hear me make that statement, you think you're justifying, Pastor. I am not justifying. The Bible tells us Jesus was tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin, and that we have a high priest who is able to identify with us and sympathize with us. If you've never been in that type of situation, don't pretend you know how to understand what's running through her mind. I am not justifying. I'm only making the point that often the church has did an absolutely horrendous job in how we use our voice, in our posture, in our tone. And if you've ever had an abortion, I want you to understand that this is a space where you can come to be loved and be told the truth, where you can find healing, and that that sin and any other that you may have committed in your life is not unforgivable. Jesus Christ shed his blood so that all of our sins could be forgiven and we could be washed clean. So, I say all that to say, we still have a responsibility to love the mother and to love the child. And I encourage you this week to get out there and use your God-given right here in this country to vote. And if you're not real familiar with the issue, it's pretty simple. The vote yes is the vote that makes it more difficult in the long run and, and is a step in the right direction towards possibly ending abortion in this state. The vote no basically says leave things the way they are. So get out there, use your God-given right that you have to vote this Tuesday, and let's stand up for the unborn. This morning, I want to get to our text now, which is Philippians 4, 4.13, and I want to talk about the peace that surpasses understanding. You know, uh, my hope is that if we have any mothers this morning listening, 
that have gone through um, the abortion, and, and you deal with that pain of, of that decision, I, I hope this morning that the Word of God can bring you encouragement as well as I try to encourage God's people this morning. Paul talks about here in our text a peace that surpasses understanding. In other words, it's a peace that doesn't really make sense. And he even goes on towards the, the back half of our text to talk about some things that normally you shouldn't have a lot of peace about. You know, being in want, being in need, going through suffering. And Paul says, look, through it all, I've actually learned the secret of being content, of being at complete peace. He refers to God as the God of peace. And peace, true inner peace, is something that all of us desire. It's one of the things that has, there's many things that have been such a blessing about traveling and doing as much international mission work as we do, but one of the things has been perspective. There are certain things and perspectives that you get when you get out of your little world and you go see how somebody else lives in their world. And one of the things that's, I mean, fascinating to me, because I know we do live in the greatest country on the earth, um, in that we have all the amenities we need. Just turn on the tap, and we got water. I mean... I'm not, I'm not lying to you. There, this week, I found myself convicted. The sheer number of gallons of water I dump on my grass so that it can look green. When I just came from a place that gets water like four hours a week. And this country, guys, we're blessed. All right? We've got it all. Most of us have multiple vehicles. We all have you know, phones. We've got homes that have air conditioning. When it's hot, you do this. You hit a little button in your house, and then your house gets cold all by itself. It's amazing. We are blessed, and yet, yet, and this is true, folks, we are the most oppressed country on the planet. Isn't that weird? And so, like, perspective is like, these things are nice, but guess what, folks? They do not bring joy. And I think it's reasonable to assume that somehow there has to even be a connection between the more stuff we have and the more depression we have. And I think this morning, with God's help, we can see why that is. But what I know is this. All of us want to have peace. There's nobody that's like, man, I, I just love being anxious, preacher. you got to give it a go. You know, been depressed for years, and I would never change a thing about it. We want peace. And you need to know the Word of God tells you you can. And this passage right here, I'm talking verses 4 through 13, that's a short little passage, probably says more about how to have peace than any other short passage you'll find in Scripture. So I want to break it down this morning. And I want you to know, God says you can have 
supernatural, divine peace that surpasses understanding. That's what God says. But I want to give the answer of how. And what you're going to find is that while God says he provides it, he is the God of peace. There are some actions that you and I must take if we are going to experience that peace. I'm going to share with you four of those this morning. Four choices or actions that you have to take if you want to experience divine peace. Number one, you must choose to rejoice in the Lord always. It starts out with rejoice. It's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. It is a command. So the art of rejoicing is a discipline that you and I must learn if we are going to experience divine peace. Now, rejoicing is really difficult when we focus on the negative. You're going to find it's very hard to truly rejoice when you focus on all that is wrong. Now, a lot of times we justify our focusing on all that is wrong by saying, but it's never been this way before. It's worse now than it was back then. Eh, I don't know that it is. It's just that we have a 24-hour news cycle, and we have hundreds of resources to tell us how bad it is. But I mean, have you ever read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, you ever read the stories of people sacrificing their babies to Molech? The the human race has always been wicked since the fall of man. And so, no, that's not an excuse to focus on what is negative. We have to rejoice, and then we have the command, in the Lord. I'm going to tell you something, folks. You can't rejoice in the Lord if you're not first in Him. You've got to be in Christ. You've got to be saved. If you want to have this supernatural divine peace that the Word of God is telling us about, you must be a true Christ follower. And this morning, if you're not a true Christ follower, listen, there is nothing more important in your life that you need to do than turn your life over to Jesus. We are to rejoice in the Lord. And so my focus needs to be on Him. And here's why rejoicing in the Lord works always. Because God doesn't change. He is always God. He is always good. You know, in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah gets his uh, initial call into ministry, the Holy Spirit takes Isaiah basically into the throne room of God. And what you need to understand, just for sake of time, I'm going to make a very simple statement. What you need to understand is that things were bad. When Isaiah answered the call of God on his life, the nation was a mess, things were not good, wickedness was abounding, and here's what Isaiah saw when the Holy Spirit took him into the place of God. He saw God on the throne. 
In other words, God hadn't moved anywhere. God was still in control. God is still on his throne. God is still God. And though the whole world looked like it's falling apart, God's not up there trembling, afraid, and scared, and out of control. Our God, brothers and sisters, is in divine control at all times. And so when I rejoice in the Lord, that never changes. This is why I can rejoice always. Now, rejoicing, it's a very important word. It basically describes, it's, it's, it's sort of the same thing as praise, but it is a heart of gratitude that is so thankful that that thankfulness somehow spills out of me. That's what true rejoicing is. It's like, I am so thankful, I am so grateful that it can't just stay in here. It makes its way out of my mouth. It makes its way out of this body of mine. You can see someone who truly rejoices in the Lord and lives that way, who rejoices always, it's in their walk. It's in their posture. It's in their tone of voice when they are just in normal conversation, and they're always looking for ways to kind of eventually work that in with whoever they're talking to about how good God is. Command number one, a choice you have to make if you are going to experience the divine peace of God, you must choose to rejoice always. Number two, you must choose to be anxious about nothing. He says, and I quote, do not be anxious about anything. Now this is a, cho a choice to acknowledge that our fears and our worries and our anxiousness, they can't change anything. You have to choose not to be anxious about anything. Now, I want to make sure that I provide some context and some clarity. So if you're a person that's like anxious all the time and you deal with anxiety, here's what you'll know. You'll be like, but preacher, I can't just flip the switch and make that pain inside me go away. I agree. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. But what you can do is be conscious that those are unwarranted fears. And you can choose to not meditate on it. You can choose, most importantly, to not act upon it. And you can become uh, uh, conscious and intentional about taking your thoughts captive. You'll find that ultimately the anxiety is ultimately fear of what might happen. Sometimes you don't even know what you're afraid of, but it's ultimately fear of what might happen. But here's what Jesus said, like, why do you worry about tomorrow? <laughs> Tomorrow's got enough worry of itself. Jesus said, basically, you can worry all that you want, but you can't even add a single inch to your height. I've tried it, folks. <laughs> Jesus knows what he's talking about. Can't add a single hair to your head. <laughs> Jesus goes on to say, look, my father feeds the birds every day. They don't even know where they're going to get their food from. 
how much more important are you than that? I mean, Jesus gives us a lot of analogies to just say, look, a lot of your fears and worries are unfounded. Ultimately, what we fear and we worry and we're anxious about is tomorrow and retirement and this and what's going to happen with our kid if they don't do this and what's going to happen with, you know, my job if it does this. And at the end of the day, you can't, no matter, even if all that stuff happens, let's just say it does, how does worrying about it change it? It only makes today worse. And Jesus is trying to communicate that to us in, in, in God's perspective of how we should handle problems. And so if you battle anxiety, here's what you're going to find is that there's a big part of your thought life where you refuse to obey what God's told you to do with those thoughts. And you've got to, you've got to start the practice of saying, okay, when these thoughts come up, when I start worrying about this and worrying about that, I've got to recognize I'm thinking on these things, I'm meditating on these things. Stop, Joplin, you can't change it. And what, and what you're going to find is when we're told to be anxious about nothing, Ultimately, this doesn't mean that somehow we stick our head in the sand and we have no consciousness of things that are bad, but rather we do not meditate on those things. We recognize when our heart's getting fearful and we're wanting to get out in front of the Lord and try to control the future that I've got to say no to that and I've got to let go and I've just got to let God deal with it. And I've, sometimes it's a process you've got to do 10 or 15 times a day Take your thoughts captive and say, nope, I'm not going to let my mind go there. I'm not going to spend the next hour of my day worrying about everything that's going wrong. And, and you will find that if you will be disciplined about that, the, the anxiety will lose a, a, a huge portion of its grip that it has on your life. This is a choice. The Word of God, we got to believe the Word of God. The Word of God tells us, it commands us, to be anxious about nothing. Number three, you must choose to meditate on what is good. I want to read this again because here he really goes into all that is good. This is not some exhaustive list, but the you know Paul is trying to over-communicate. If you're going to spend your time thinking, think about these things in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The implication is clear. Choose to meditate on what is good. Now my pessimist brothers are going to say, well, it starts out with what is true. And I'm just a realist, man. It's true that the world's bad. Listen, take the Bible in context. Every other word there is meant to communicate something that is good and excellent. And in the context of true here, we're talking about Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Okay, don't, don't go there. Don't make excuses. This is clearly talking about the truth of Scripture, the truth of who Christ is. And so we've got to meditate on what is good. Can I tell you something that you're going to find the Bible never does? It never tells you to do or commands you to do what you're going to do automatically. Nowhere are you commanded to breathe. You know, you, you, we need commanded 
and we need directions to do the things we don't do naturally. So naturally, we're anxious about everything. The Bible says don't be anxious about anything. Naturally, we want to meditate on what is bad and all that's wrong. The Bible says, no, think on all that is good and that is right. you got to recognize that it's your own instinctive sinful nature to focus on what is wrong and to focus on all that Satan is doing instead of focusing on what God is doing. And we have to make the choice to think on what is good. Meditate on it. You've got to take time each day. And if you'll be honest, if you, if you battle, you know, a discouragement and depression and everything, here's what, if, you, if you were to take a pie chart and chart out the time each day that you think on all that is wrong and all that is negative, and then you also put in there that little sliver of time that you do maybe think about what is good and what's right, and you try to think about God, if you're battling great depression and anxiety this morning, you're going to find that pie chart's dominated by you thinking about what's negative. And it takes discipline to change that way of thinking. It takes work. And I know I've been there. I'm not up here some Pharisee saying, do as I say, not as I do. Look, I've been there. I dealt with depression for years, and if you've ever been here any length of time, you know I've talked about that. I just have enough integrity to be honest that during that period of time, I chose to meditate on what is wrong, and I chose not to take my thoughts captive, and I chose not to do everything I'm telling you to do this morning. And it wasn't until I finally quit arguing with God about it, and I started obeying God and trying to do it God's way, that things began to shift and change in my life. That's just the truth of the matter, because God's Word is true. And so, number three, you've got to choose to meditate on what is good good. And you might find there are certain things you've got to put in place in your life to make that happen. Maybe you've got to turn off the news. I don't like the news. I, I try to stay in as much as possible to know what's happening in my world, but I don't go much more than that. I probably consume approximately 30 minutes of news per week anywhere from five to ten minutes a day. That's enough for me, and I'm like, that's enough. Maybe you've got to get some people out of your life, man. I have found for me that I, there's a tricky balance, you know, of trying to, AJ's never come at me this way, so I'm going to use AJ as an example. There's a tricky balance. Let's say that AJ's my friend that always wants to try to talk to me about all that's going wrong in the world and, and why we all need to go hide in a cave and wait for Jesus to come home. Uh, there's a tricky balance between me trying to encourage AJ to come out of that mindset because I'm the pastor and I'm wanting to help and he's just coming to me as his pastor trying to get some help. There's a tricky balance even for me of how long do I engage in that before it starts to drag me down like, oh man, why even try? You're right, let's just die. And there's enough of it for me that at times I'm like, okay, I've got to just stop this conversation now and find a way to be like, hey, brother, let's just pray about these things and put them in the hands of a God who handles it all and somehow stop this conversation before we both end up walking around like a dog with our tail between our legs. Sometimes you got to get the wrong people out of your life that just are 
always negative. But at the end of the day, it is a choice that each of us as individuals must make to meditate on what is good. Now, I'm telling you, folks, this is the path to the peace that surpasses understanding. A lot of us want that peace. We'll hit our knees and we'll pray, God, give me peace that surpasses understanding. God, I know your word says you are the God of peace. And I want the peace that only you can give. But then you meditate all day on what's negative. You choose not to think on what is good. You're not rejoicing in the Lord. And you're like, why doesn't this work? Look, there are some choices we must make. You have to make these choices in your own life if you're going to experience the divine peace of God. And finally, number four, you must choose to be content in every situation. So I want to look at verse 11. There's an important word that I want to put in here, that I want to note. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Look at the word learned. Paul said, I have learned how to be content in every situation. This final piece of of truly just living at peace and being content no matter what we face, it is a learned discipline. It's learned through trial and error. It's learned by worrying like crazy and having to just thinking the whole world's going to fall apart and it's never going to be good. And then all of a sudden, God does something we didn't anticipate. And before we know it, we're out of that trial. And we look back on it, we're like, wow, I was kind of whiny then. And, I, and, and God was in control all the time. And sure enough, just like Isaiah said, God was still on his throne. And God was, in fact, working out all things for my good, wasn't he? And even what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. Wow, the, the, the Bible's true. Would you figure that? And then next time I face that exact same situation, I come at it a little different. And then the devil comes at me with a different situation I wasn't prepared to handle. And I'm back to feeling anxious and I'm back to feeling worried. And then I end up with the same old thing that happens. And I find out, well, God was in control then too. And what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. And God's able to work all things to the good of those who love God according to according to his purpose. And as I continue this process, I learn. I learn to be content in every situation. So this sermon was born out of that thought. Last couple weeks as I was there in Honduras in one of the poorest areas literally on the planet. Not just Honduras. There are certain areas of Honduras that are nice. But Honduras is the, the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. The first is Haiti, and then comes Honduras. But where we're at in Honduras is one of the most um, underdeveloped areas of Honduras. And we're literally working with some of the most poorest people on planet Earth. And And I thought about how the reality is that sometimes all the choices that we have here as Americans, they actually make us become discontent. 
You know, like one of the great honors that uh, some of the sponsors there have when they go to a home visit, every now and then one of the, the, the families, they actually go buy a pizza. The pizza is normally three to four hours old. It's cold because they didn't know when you were coming. They just wanted to make sure they had pizza when you got there. And they had to get a ride in some vehicle with 30 other people into town 30 minutes away, get the pizza, pay for the pizza, which is beautiful in and of itself. They would do that, but then haul the pizza back home and then wait for you to show up to give you your pizza. And I look at the beds that they sleep on. I look at the life that they live in. There's just not choices. The water. We, we dealt with people all through this last week, that, that uh, last two weeks, that were filled with worms because of the water and just the sanitation that they have to work with. I think we, we provided medicine for like 140-some people that had worms. And... I'm looking, I'm like, there's not another choice. But as Americans, we're so used to when we want pizza, like we've got 15 choices right now. And you'll find that when you have a lot of choice, it ends up breeding discontentment. Because you want this, this, you got all these options. It's like, I want that option. That's the best one. Then if you don't get your choice, now you're not happy. It's interesting how not having choices can actually lead to being more content. <laughs> Learning to be content. You know, I worked with a, a, one of the pastors at the churches that we were in. So the, the big church that, we were, that we've worked with for the last four years, last year the pastor left. Left the church in shambles. We're, we, it, the church is reeling. I'm doing the best I can to help them restructure and help them have a path forward. And I sat down with the pastor who took over. We're talking about the challenges of pastoring in that situation. And I just asked him, you know, can you read? He says, no, I can't read. I said, how, how? So, you know, how do you preach? He says, well, I've been in church my whole life. I've served for years. You know, I've heard all the sermons for, for, for 30-some years of my life, and I just have to trust on the things that I know and that I've heard and uh, pray and work them into sermons. This is what I told the man. I said, listen, I commend you for being willing to stand up when there wasn't anybody else out here in this place willing to lead these people. But that puts you in a difficult position where you're at the mercy of hoping that everything you ever heard was true. <laughs> You really need to be able to read the Word of God for yourself. And um, I asked him if, if possibly I was able to get him a tutor to teach him Spanish, if he'd be interested. I'm looking at now maybe trying to get the guy a Spanish Bible so at the very least he can start hearing the Word of God himself. These are the challenges they're facing up there. And then you'll find here at times, we've got me, we've got Pastor Tony, uh, we've got... Uh, 
um, Richard, we've got Bryson, we've got Paul, we've got Michael Graham, we've got other guys that can teach and preach the Word of God. And if we're not careful, we'll find that even like we're not content. Like, well, you, you've got your selection. Well, who's preaching today? I would rather have that one. The Word of God's being taught by men of God who are in the Word of God, who are seeking the face of God. And, and what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is it's so easy for us to become dissatisfied when we have so many choices. And that, that lack of contentment is actually a mark of spiritual immaturity. It's a mark of selfishness. And Paul says, I've learned to be content in all things. And I'm going to tell you, if you're truly going to live with the peace of God that surpasses understanding, you're actually going to have to learn to be content in all things. Paul said, I've learned to be content in lack. In other words, when I didn't have everything I needed. Well, I didn't have everything I wanted. I've learned what it's like in that situation to be content. And he finishes with this statement, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. In other words, no matter what I go through, and this points us all the way back to why we rejoice in the Lord. No matter what I go through, Christ is with me. And at the end of the day, that's enough. He is with me. He gives me strength for the situation. He gives me strength for the moment. And in Christ and in Christ alone, no matter what I face, no matter what I go through, he gives me strength to endure that thing. And therefore, I have learned that no matter what I face, no matter what hardship comes my way, no matter what lack I might be going through, I can trust that God is with me. And if God is with me and God is for me, then who can be against me? And in the end, it's all enough, brothers and sisters. Well, even if what's happening was meant for evil, God can make it for good. No matter what I'm going through, God can turn it and use it for my good because that's how in control God is. That's how good God is. And He is with me Always. There is a peace that surpasses understanding. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. We're going to sing a song or two of, of worship to close out the service this morning. A couple final thoughts. You need to know that God desires that you have peace. God desires that not only do you have peace, but that you have a peace that is unshakable to the point that the world around you, when they, they look at you, they don't understand the type of peace that you live with. God literally wants you to have that type of peace. This is not a fake it till you make it peace. This is not a pretend you have peace because you're supposed to. This is a very real, tangible peace that is deep in the depth of your heart that truly impacts the way that you think. It changes your entire attitude. God calls it the peace that surpasses understanding. That's what he wants you to have. But God's not going to give it to you against your will. If you want it, then prove it. Do what God tells you to do to experience it. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Choose to be anxious about nothing. Meditate on what is good. Learn to be content in every situation. And then, and only then, will you truly experience the peace that surpasses understanding. Child of God, you need to know this morning, that peace is yours. It's yours to choose to reach out and grab a hold of and live by faith and make these things yours. Do these things. Make these choices. But to you this morning, that you cannot say in sincerity that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This peace can be yours. But first, you must be God's. You need to be born into the family of Christ. You need to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus. You need to make the conscious choice to follow Jesus. And this morning, if you've never done that, I invite you to do that. I invite you to turn to Him.